Welcome back to season two of the Conversation a podcast for the Technology and Instructional Design course at Adelphi University. I'm Aaron. I teach this class, and every semester I invite one or two students to join me every week to talk about the readings. I'm very grateful to the students who take the time to prepare for this, and also for any of you listening. Last semester was the first time I did this, so everything was new. But this semester, we actually have the previous episodes to work from. And although each season has similar readings and topics, each cohort will bring their views to the topic, and we will also revisit what others have said in the past. Finally, I'd like to give a shout out to Brandon Dove for composing the intro and outro for this podcast. This week, our topic is misconceptions in education, and I'd like to introduce the first guest of the season, Tanya. Please tell us a bit about yourself. So, obviously, my name is Tanya. Actually, as of today, I am the Associate Director of Admissions Operations here at Adelphi. I grew up in Brooklyn. I live in Wontaw right now. I did my undergraduate and my MBA at Adelphi already, so I'm very familiar with the school. I'm not super confident with podcasts. I've done one before, but um, definitely not one of my strengths. So this is taking me out of my comfort zone, but in a good way. Oh, then don't think of it as a podcast. Just think of it as a conversation you're having with someone else. Okay. Yeah, I have to get that out of my mind. (laughs) So why do you think I set up the first two weeks the way I did with preconceptions and then misconceptions? I think it makes sense. It gives us the opportunity to become more aware of our preconceptions, um, which is something I don't think we necessarily think about. And it's good to know what what that understanding means for our learning. And then I feel like it's a natural progression to talk about misconceptions, which of course we're also bringing with us. And it's a reminder that what we quote unquote know may not be right. I think it's basically a subtle push to open our minds before we further explore. Is that an oversimplification of it or is there something I didn't consider? I think partly because I know that a lot of people, including myself, thought that I had learning style. And a lot of students, and and not just this class, but other classes would volunteer that they are this or that type of learner. So I thought it would be interesting to start with this whole idea of preconceptions and then see the extent to which they're able to step back and look at the literature on learning styles and see if they can change. So it is kind of two things going on. It's kind of trying to practice the idea of misconception, but also doing what Donovan and Bransford said about understanding the students' prior knowledge and then changing that, I guess. What did you think of the pre-class survey results? So I wasn't surprised at them at all. Um, I looked at this question before I reviewed any of the materials. And when I myself took the survey, I didn't give the question a second thought. I know my learning style. I'm more visual and kinesthetic. And I kind of just figured you were trying to get a feel for the class's style which of course made sense to me. And I think most, if not all of us, were under that same impression. But I remember you telling us to just answer and not look up the terms. And I figured that was because you wanted to see if we had that idea of learning styles um, ingrained in us. But the results themselves, you know, these are the things I hear people say the most that they need to see to learn or that they learn by doing. And I'm definitely one of those people. And if memory serves, this was something that was brought up in one of the materials saying that most people identify as visual and or kinesthetic learners. And the survey on misconceptions. So this is one of those things I think we need to take a step back all as individuals. I saw that there were a few people who said that their willingness to confront their misconceptions was at level five. Mm-hmm. I was, I'm pretty sure I was one of them. Um, but I wonder if we're being honest with ourselves. 
or even if four was my selection, I think it's more about how I'd hope to be rather than necessarily where I'm at. I'd like to think that I try to make a concerted effort to be more mindful of my ignorance. Maybe I'm just giving myself a little too much credit there, though. I don't know. I mean, I, I would take it on face value when people say they're willing to change their minds when confronted. I don't know. I think as far as the learning styles go, I think most of us would have selected visual. I don't know. It just seems to be the trend, if you will. And I don't know. It's just something you hear a lot. I was actually, I was wondering, like, is there a reason why fewer people identify with auditory or verbal? Yeah, I mean, I, th I guess this is more about how you receive information, not so much how you communicate it. So yeah, maybe that's why verbal is not there. But that's a good point. Usually it's visual, auditory, kinesthetic as the three main categories. And what are your experience with learning styles? I've subscribed to that idea for as long as I can remember. I've seen it as I struggle with auditory and I struggle with reading things and taking that in and learning through that. And I've felt that I thrive more by seeing and doing. So, I mean, I imagine that you yourself may have had that kind of a preconception at some point, maybe? Yeah, no, I think before I was familiar with this, I, I would probably have classified myself as a visual learner for the same reasons. It seems to me, in my view at the time, that I remember things more visually, even though I read a lot. More recently, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I do retain those things. It's it's what you, you know what she said about confirmation bias is that you know you think you're a visual learner, and so you just can only remember the examples of you learning things visually, even though you obviously have learned in many other ways. Yeah, that was an interesting point of hers. You know, just because you know that somebody calls you and you're thinking of them doesn't mean that you know you have some kind of power or that that's something that there's something to it. It's just a confirmation bias that. Just because you feel like you're learning through visual doesn't necessarily mean that your other senses, if you will, are lacking. As far as like my other experiences, I work with 40 people and, um, you know, they regularly mention their style in passing and I've never questioned it, you know, it just makes sense to me. And it's something I try to be really mindful of when, you know, we send out emails with instructions I don't know, multiple times a week because things are constantly changing. And I try to include like completely clear and concise written instructions and I include screenshots. And we're actually moving forward to including free screencasts in our emails. So I think people are really enjoying that and they've responded really well to them. Um, so I think they'd be really, really surprised by our material this week. Um, and I think some of them would be deniers of it. Can you give an example of what are these instructions about? Sure. So we work with a CRM, Constituent Relationship Management Program. All right. So it's basically a database with everything that we use, that we access when it comes to students. And the program is wonderful, in part because they're constantly updating, like they're improving their abilities, essentially. And they're trying to make it easier for us as users to own the program ourselves rather than relying on them for information. Mm -hmm. And with that comes these change in processes. And they happen pretty frequently. And one tiny thing that people are so used to doing without thinking about it can throw them off incredibly. So we try to, you know, kind of get ahead of them and be like, okay, so this is what's changed. Don't freak out. This is the new process. And it's okay, you know, we're here for questions. This, you're not limited to this email. So I think before I was in this role or part of the operations team period, there really was no use of screenshots, um, maybe limited ones. And it's something that I always appreciate. You know, here's 
this box over the word I'm referencing, you know, just look here. You don't have to search the page for everything I'm talking about. So I found that it's very helpful. It's also important to contextualize, I guess, the, the critique uh, of this week's reading is just like Marshik said, it's not that people don't have preferences. I think that's valid. I think the whole problem with the learning style approach is to box people into you're only a visual learner or you're only an auditory learner. So it's that part that's the problem. It's not the fact that people have preferences. It's not that you have to present, in your case, like only text because everyone's supposed to know text and that it's an excuse if they need visual. Like, like you should provide screenshots and you should provide screencasts because what you're trying to show them, I'm assuming, makes a lot more sense when they can see it, right? Absolutely. And the issue, too, is people don't read. People, yeah, uh, that, that too. And that's also you have to kind of think about every kind of modality has its limitations and its benefits, right? Uh, like a voice thread has its benefits, but it's kind of hard to search on it. Like you have to hunt, you have to try to tr trace down a comment or what someone said. It's You can't do that. So there are those kind of limitations that is specific to the modality. It's more important to think about those features than it is to think of this person is this kind of learner and, and so on. And also, I also wanted to distinguish that from universal design, which we'll read about in a few weeks, which is also about providing information in different modalities. So there's even a little bit of tension there. I think universal design is trying to offer like possibilities. It's not trying to box it in, it's, but it is trying to be kind of preemptive, I guess in terms of the content. And of course, it's also not to say that, that people who have learning disabilities or that that doesn't impact the way they learn. So I had a student who said she was dyslexic. That's something to keep in mind. So the critique doesn't kind of dismiss all that. No, that makes sense. What did you think of the reading about the use of learning styles in the video? The second I heard her speak, it was just kind of like a, like a light bulb just went off. You know, it was... It just made perfect sense that there is no such thing as a learning style. It's a matter of preference. It's not fair to the students or to the teachers who are trying to adapt to these quote-unquote learning styles to pigeonhole these students into these boxes. And I just, I found that so fascinating. And she did a really good job of presenting it overall and not overwhelming because it's, it's this like shocking thing. Like, wow, this is something I've believed for so long. And well, you've just shot that, <laughs> you know, that was actually the first thing I'm, I saw kind of put me on this trajectory that got me excited about it too so it's nice to force yourself to pull back like I don't know where why I even believed in learning styles in the first place I didn't read anything that told me that but it's one of those things I don't know if it's intuitive or it's just kind of so diffused that people just realize it. and and as she said it's because it makes sense I always find that really fascinating as an experience <laughs> yeah and, and you're definitely not the only one Reddit has a, I forget what it's called, like prove I'm wrong or something, like yeah. give me the opposite. I mean, some people are just there to argue, but sure. others are curious. They legitimately want to know the other side. So I think there's something to be said for that. It's easy to get defensive and just be like, no, I'm right. So being open-minded about it to realize, hey, there might be something to another person's opinion or another person's experiences. So mm -hmm. I think it'd be good if we all kind of move towards that. Mm-hmm. What about the scenarios where you have a student who's, you know, who's been matched with somebody who's a visual teacher, if you will, and let's say they could be getting so much more from somebody who's showing them the auditory version of it, 
you're doing a disservice to the student. They could be getting so much more. And and also some schools really push this idea of learning styles. And if you're a teacher, I know some, we have some teachers in this class. Um, you might be forced to do it, or you know, forced to include something in your lesson plan that acknowledges that you are addressing learning styles, that kind of thing. So it is very prob- problematic. I think what we can do as educators is to know of this misconception and then maybe try to do our best to correct it, at least not perpetuate it, I guess, and then correct it when it seems uh, appropriate. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think pigeonholing, it's not just even just learning styles. Anytime you pigeonhole a student into any box, you, you're creating potential problems. So I have two comments on this. So the pigeonholing part about the learning styles, I think it's also pigeonholing students to, um, you know, like you have your honor students and then you have your more remedial students, what have you. Isn't there something to be said about maybe, maybe not everything, but having these students who have the different strengths learn from each other? Like everybody has something else to offer. So like maybe the person who might be more well-versed in reading, and I think one of the readings did mention this, could they have something to offer to a student that's less capable or their ability is lower and also in that in the process teaching the student who is in the higher level something about themselves and improving their understanding like i just think there's something inherently wrong about pigeonholing students so yeah no i agree like tracking like i I, we had ap classes honors classes (laughs) it's like a caste system kind of thing you know yeah and you do that so early on in school that i agree i think it creates a a a whole different set of problems and and like you said it deprives um people from the interaction the the benefit of the exposure of different things i mean i i guess maybe it makes sense in some things like math like if you're really not a math person like you don't want to be in calculus but you don't want to stop someone from learning calculus yeah some students are put on that trajectory whereas other students basically are told well maybe don't go that route or at least from what i've seen so i think it's it's some kind of a balance to make sure that you know like you said the pigeonholing it's not going to have a negative impact the idea of sharing these findings these sorts of articles about learning styles not actually existing with peers and colleagues i think is a great start but it's just so ingrained in our current educational system and in just your people in general you know i think somebody mentioned in last or last semester's podcast that dealing with parents with this mindset how do you change this fundamentally wrong idea that's that just makes up so much of what we do you know i hate to have the position where like okay well how much can one or five or ten people change especially if they're being expected to conform to this and i don't i don't know if they get in trouble so to speak if they don't there might be some kind of negative impact on them to even try to share this so it's just uh how, how do we make this happen on a large scale even for teachers to share these kind of findings with parents. Yeah, and to actually like actually be able to change that fundamental idea. Like, is that possible? Like, how do you make such something so big change? Yeah, I mean, I guess it will have to depend on the parent and the teacher and the school system and all that stuff. But I think, you know, like I said earlier, you know, don't perpetuate it. That's a good start. If you have a colleague who believes that, maybe try to change their mind or like point them in, in the direction of, hey, look at this research. Fortunately, being mindful of how you present learning material, like I said, it's even part of a universal design. It is the mentality that you have as an educator. If you know that, then you'll be able to 
do a better job of of not stressing yourself out and trying to think of the like what are the visual learners going to get out of it or what are the auditory learners going to get out of it and just think of like the material and then offer options when it makes sense to i'm curious like what others would have to say about that as well you know i'm not an educator so like i don't have that experience and i don't deal with teachers in that way or the educational system administrators i just i have this like outsider perspective on it and i hope it's wrong <laughs> well even doing what you do you mentioned putting out these informational documents i guess do the people who make them talk about learning styles no i'm the one that makes them you make them okay yeah chrissy who's also in this class she and i work on making them but you're not being told like oh you need to put this in there because we have Kinesthetic learners, I know what I'm going to do with. <laughs> no, they like it. They like to, they have it shown and then they go back and do it. So it's just kind of like, okay, if that works for you. But no, we're not specifically being told, okay, well, to make it more clear to somebody who identifies as a visual learner, go make the screenshot or make the screencast. It's more something we just took upon ourselves because we hear people say that they learn better yeah. using these methods. So, Like there's nothing fundamentally wrong with presenting things in different ways like if if it's possible to i'm trying to think because i work with iDesign i don't know if you know them but iDesign is kind of a vendor they do instructional design stuff but they will take the videos i create and then they'll put out a transcript for, for the video and you need to i think again this might i think marshak might have said that it's you need to prioritize things like like make sure that you do the important stuff first like make sure your instructional materials are good and then if you want to put in different options of modalities, that's fine. One thing that kept coming up in my mind was handwriting information versus typing information. So like if you're in class taking notes, mm -hmm. do you get as much from typing as you would handwriting the notes? So it's not the same thing that Marshik talks about, you know, about rewriting your notes. Although I have, I take issue with that as well. But it's more of a question of which method works better. Does it matter? Is it? Based, like based on the person because I've always heard you know handwrite your notes makes better uh, mm -hmm. sense which for me I think it does but is that a thing <laughs> I think I mentioned in my response to a to pre-reading what Chrissy said and then I responded to it I type all my notes even though there is research that says that writing is better than like it helps you remember it better than typing which I can make sense because sometimes my hand just starts typing and I, and I don't even like, consciously know what I'm typing. I, don't, I can't imagine you doing that with writing. So there's a bit more work involved. Uh, in my response to Chris, I mentioned that I'm writing on tablets now. So it's not paper. The gesture is the same. The, you know, the physical movement is the same. And I'm hoping that's, that's enough. It's not the, like it wouldn't make sense to me if it was the medium. That's the issue. I guess the, the counterpoint if I can just disagree with myself, I guess the counterpoint is possibly that when you're typing, if you want to go back and search for something, again, it's the modality thing. Like it's much more easier to do that than to look at your notes. Again, that's why I do the electronic writing thing because that is searchable. So maybe that is the happy medium between the two. Yeah, uh, I, I can see that. And also like what I find is past Tanya writes things down that she thinks future Tanya will know what she's talking about. <laughs> um, like these like little notes, like a quick abbreviation. I'm just like... What does this yeah. even mean? So if I were to type it, I think, and I type very quickly, so I could just really give myself the opportunity to fill in those blanks that I might have in the future. So there's something yeah. to be said for it, yeah. Yeah, I have the same issue about writing stuff that I don't re realize what it meant. Oh, I'm, I'm glad. It makes me feel better. <laughs> <laughs>
What was you? You mentioned something about disagreeing with her with oh her yeah rewriting right. So I think like to some extent I do agree with her in terms of you know if you're just passively rewriting things then you're not going to get anything out of it. But um, mm. when I was an undergrad, I want to say like the student at what's now the student access office. You know, I was a note taker for a student. And um, mm-hmm. I didn't want to just give them the notes, like the scribbled, you know, Tanya notes to them. I wanted it to make sense. So I ended up rewriting things. But I felt that I actually got a lot out of it because it like made me think, okay, well, did I understand this? Did, you know, maybe I need some extra research on this. And then I ended up putting more notes, um, both for myself and for the other student. So I mm. think there's maybe a passive and a more active version of rewriting that maybe isn't being considered. Do you mean writing notes in class and then writing it out, kind of expanding it? Something Unintentionally, like that? yeah. So it's not verbatim? No, I start with verbatim, but then I realize, okay, well, maybe there's something I'm missing here. So like, I start with this intent to just repeat everything like as it is there, but then I realize, okay, so maybe there's something missing. Maybe this could be better. Maybe I'm not understanding something. So I kind of dig into it because I'm rewriting. That's a good question because it probably is a difference between active and passive writing or copying. But also next week's reading, uh, the topic about the brain, and especially the podcasts, Barbara Oakley talks about practice, like redoing something, not necessarily the same thing over and over again, maybe, but doing kind of drill exercises, which used to be dismissed as rote, but has now without better understanding of the brain, kind of revived as a, a good thing to do, as long as that's not the only thing you do. So I think there is something to that. And again, maybe we can revisit this next week. We've read a lot about how learning means understanding. Mm-hmm. And I really liked how Marsha took it further, saying that most of what we learn is stored in terms of meaning. It's like these three things that work together. The meaning part, I felt, was, well, you know, meaningful. Um, <laughs> and I think her using the images of the chessboards that Donovan and Bransford, you know, included in their reading from last week, she actually made me understand it a little better than the two authors did in the sense that this expert who knows these chessboards, you know, what is a winning chessboard? Look, I'm not a chess player, so I'm using terrible <laughs> language here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, of course they're able to be better able to identify compared to a novice because it means something to them. Mm-hmm. And it was just so interesting that, you know, when you randomize it, it means nothing. So regardless of your level of expertise. Right. I think um, in the Donovan Branson reading, they were talking about it in reference to the second principle, right? About, about giving them facts, but then giving them the organizing principle, which I think that's what she was referring to is that if you teach facts like history or whatever, if you don't give students something to make sense of it, then it'll just sit there not making any sense. And so that is the difference between becoming an expert, which is to see things in a professional way, versus if you're a novice and, and everything just looks random to you. So yeah, I mean, I guess her, I think her point was to say that like the chessboard makes sense because the expert knows where the chess pieces should be. It's not that they're visual learners. I think that was her example. What did you think of the podcast from last semester on the same topic from Marina and Angela? They kind of just reminded me of things that I didn't mention in my notes because I listened to theirs after I did all my readings in my notes because I didn't want it to influence what I was thinking. 
it was very interesting to hear feedback from two students who are actually teachers, um, something mm-hmm. I can't relate to. I also really appreciated the fact that the topic of self-education in terms of medicine came up. <laughs> that was one of the like parts of the readings that I think I took issue with the most, because I do think students need to be taught how to self-educate because, you know, in theory, and hopefully we are lifelong learners, that mm-hmm. learning goes outside of our formal education. Mm-hmm. So when I was writing that, I was thinking of it in the standard K through 12 system, you know, not mm-hmm. considering medicine. So that's a fair point. You know, self-education isn't for everything, and you have to be mindful of that. I know one question that students from last semester asked after this reading was, what about multiple intelligences? Howard Gardner, who came up with multiple intelligences, how does that fit in? And one thing is how Gardner himself does not believe in learning styles. He also thinks it's nonsense. But I think the problem also is that Howard Gardner's own work on multiple intelligences have been critiqued for also not being not being empirically supported, at least at the time. Is that his reason for thinking that learning styles are? Oh no, I think he just that, he ironic. just didn't believe. Um, he just didn't okay. think that the the research was rigorous. I think his pro- the critique for him. I think it's about how it was too vague, his multiple intelligences, uh, which has also bridged learning intelligence down into verbal and auditory and verbal and linguistic and intrapersonal and interpersonal and all that stuff. The problem was, it's an idea that you can't really disprove. So it's, it's hard to do research on something that you can't disprove. It's more like a, I mean, I think what he brought to the conversation is that prior to him, or at least during his time, people thought of intelligence as this one thing. And he introduced the idea that intelligence is a lot more variable. So I think that is important to keep in mind. I think the specifics of his theory is possibly problematic. It's more like a model, maybe. Maybe this is not part of the brain that that corresponds to each of those intelligences. At least, not as far as I know, I think the the, the studies on neuroscience is still relatively new. So maybe people could prove him right in the end. So at least that was a critique. So I'm just kind of preempting any questions about Howard Gardner and multiple intelligences about do learners know best. What did you think of that reading? You know, that and the complimentary article that Krishna wrote, I think they were very insightful. Uh It, you know, brought to light to me things that I didn't know about our education system. For example, how how much we allow for learners to take the reins. Um, Mm. I also appreciated that they took the information about the lack of research or how flawed the current research is. Mm-hmm. And they also explain that. And I really think that everybody's trying to you know, drive home that there's something wrong with this, that we can't just take this at face value because we think it sounds good or it seems to make sense to us. I kind of got the impression that they were arguing, at least in part, that using a preferred style is perhaps detrimental, like period. And like, it's logical now that I've read it, cognitive abilities seem to be the main factor to consider. But I think that maybe a preferred method can still be useful. Maybe I'm just misunderstanding it. Uh, do cognitive abilities align with the style? Like, you know, I just may be projecting here, but I'm curious. <laughs> what do you mean by cognitive abilities? So they were saying, like, your ability to remember things mm-hmm. or see things and learn from them is more of an ability or a skill versus a style. Yeah, I think maybe maybe there's something I missed there when I was doing the reading. 
that's one of the the tricky things. I, I mean, I think your question is 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 really important because I think what they're trying to say is just because a student doesn't like or prefer whether it's for good or bad reason, like whether it's for because they believe in learning styles or whether they just have a preference of not doing something, should you just say, okay, well then do this other thing? I think it's more about like a balance. Um, I was reading because I always wonder about how much reading to assign. I was I was reading a statistic about how a lot of students go through college reading very little because people don't like to assign them reading. And I think it's maybe something along those lines where there are things that students have to be able to do, like writing (laughs) and reading and writing as the most basic thing, but also other things like listening and all that stuff. Just because you don't necessarily enjoy it doesn't mean that you should be spared of it i guess public speaking is one of like uh, just as an example because i know chrissy mentioned it and i'm i really don't like public speaking either but i know that the more i do it the less stressful i get and i think it's they're probably trying to that's probably their point so it is a difficult balance like how do you strike that balance i guess that's that's the difficult thing that's the challenge it seems to be a challenge in you know more or less everything we do (laughs) yeah Hopefully we'll figure it out. It's, yeah. They talked about three myths. I think one of them is learning style, so we don't need to go back on that. What about what they said about digital natives and multitasking? The digital native one I found very interesting, and I think both of them because I find them relatable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got defensive at times when I'm reading. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, This makes perfect sense, particularly <laughs> with the multitasking one. Um mm-hmm. But I think based on this like urban legend definition, I am a digital native and, mm-hmm. you know, my, the older generations tend to reinforce that. And it's like, a, well, of course, you must be tech savvy. You grew up with this almost your whole life. But when you think about it, like most of us are not at this level that Krishner and then Mar- Marion Bohr argue a native should be if it even exists. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got really defensive on behalf of my generation, but, you know, they made a, they made a very valid point there. Mm-hmm. Um, that deep knowledge of technology is missing. You know, we can, we can do things, but do we understand, you know, what does it mean to type, for example, and have that show up on the screen? Like these little things that you maybe don't take into consideration. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like their mention of, you know, are having often limited to basic office suite skills. <laughs> and I laughed because, <laughs> you know, this is something we so eagerly put on our resumes, you know, but... Yeah you know, how much of it do we really know? And I, you know, I wrote this down just because I find it fun. Um, With such a large office, I work with so many undergraduate students. They're all fantastic. And like our office genuinely couldn't run without them. And Mm -hmm. they've grown up with technology, you know, like more so than I have. And I'm just floored when I find that, find out that some of them don't know what I mean when I say, well, just control F it. Like, Mm -hmm. how, how, how do you not know this? This is just seems so common to me. So undergrad students. Yes. Yeah, so hmm. the people born in 2000s and later. Even if that's not the phrase they use, it would seem that they would be able to infer what it meant. Although I guess with smartphones, you don't really, if you want to search for something, you don't really control effort, right? You, I mean, you, I don't know, you hard press on something. I don't know, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> you can't say that uh, and have it make sense. Uh, I don't know, but I, yeah, it, it could be, um, that's the point they're making. And multitasking, of course, I recognize that the research that's been done basically nullifies the notion that multitasking is even possible. And, you know, that makes sense to me. Um, 
according to scientists, we're essentially hardwired in a way that makes it impossible to have two or more actions take place at exactly the same time. Mm-hmm. And that we're just really skilled at switching between tasks in a very quick way. And you mentioned this before, you know, how much do we really know about the brain? And it makes me wonder if this is going to be something that gets tweaked in the future. Um, you know, maybe they're wrong, or maybe we are, you know, more able to multitask in the traditional sense of the word. I mean, like, what, what do we know? Like 1% of the brain? I don't know where I'm getting that statistic from, to be honest. Um, so, <laughs> but there's just so little that's known about it that, yeah. you know, there's so many things we think are such facts that get disproven regular, like Pluto, right? Yeah. Um, that just get disproven all the time. That... Yeah. I mean, I think this reminds me of the um, Richard Meyer stuff. And he, he's not studying it from a neuroscience perspective, but it is kind of cognition. And he's, Richard Meyer, he describes um, the theory is that we have visual and auditory channels and we can read and we can listen to music because those are two separate channels. So that's fine. But there's a limit. So the more you flood both the or one or the other, the less the person will be able to learn or retain information. So I just think of like whenever I'm watching a movie and if there are subtitles, my, my eyes get distracted by the subtitles regardless and I miss what's on screen just because I can't, it's really hard to focus on both. I don't think that's what they mean here by multitasking per se. I think they, they're talking about something else. They're talking about switching tasks completely, right? I think that's the difference. So having music on and reading, you're not switching tasks. You're not switching between reading and listening to music, right? That's the difference that they're talking about. But you're doing them simultaneously. Um, I think what they're talking is like if you were writing a paper and texting your friend, that type of thing would probably be more problematic. I don't know if they say this specifically, but I I think this is in the research, is that you don't really multitask, you monotask, you just actually switch back and forth. Uh, you can't actually do two things at once. You can switch between two things, but you can't actually do two things at once. I think that's the point they're making. I don't know about like uh, multitasking as a job skill. Oh, but you see it so often. <laughs> that's like how, not a how, good thing. Uh, how well do you multitask? You know, are you able to multitask? I've, I've asked it in interviews, you know. Yeah. I'm totally guilty of that. But I feel like if, if someone was to ask that in an interview, I, I'm, I'm assuming they mean, like, can you lead a team, do research, teach, you know, like, run separate things? Oh, can you take care of separate things at once? Not necessarily, can you teach and lead a team at the same time? I, I You know, I think in that context, like, can you multitask probably means can you have several things on your plate or whatever, something, whatever the metaphor is, but not, not literally like doing. Yeah. I think I'm taking the whole multitasking thing way too literally. (laughs) Um, So I, yeah, I realized that I might be like multitasking, you know, just the traditional literally doing something and something else simultaneous. And I also feel like we can probably do it in small bursts. And again, I think it has to do with your consciousness. I feel like People who have children, they must be able to multitask and like they t- take care of a baby, feed a baby, and have a conversation on the phone, um, that kind of thing. I think that is possible, but again, it's not one is not interrupting the other. It might also more apply to like mental, like conscious stuff. And now I'm getting where I'm making things up, so <laughs> stop. There. Uh, but I'm, again, this is more speculation. Uh, but yeah, what about self-educating? Uh, okay, so I'm torn about it. Um, I do not think that education should remove or diminish the need of teachers from the equation. You know, they have so much to offer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think, and I think I mentioned this before, we need to prepare students um, to be able to self-educate themselves. 
the internet is pervasive. You know, we all use it. I mean, I use all like first world people. Um, <laughs> we, we use it, you know, day in and day night. I have two computers, my phone and iPad, and like they're all connected. Basically, there are times where I'm using all four of them. <laughs> I wonder why sometimes, but that does happen. Mm -hmm. um, we're there. It's a reality. And we should be encouraging students to continue their learning past their formal education and teaching them how to be digitally literate and doing so so they can find the true, um, like, legitimate information rather and like knowing how to investigate whether something like who is it written by you know what is this person's agenda um mm -hmm. like teaching them to do that and i know that a lot of places are including that into their curricula um there is something to being self-educated i don't think there's somebody who just you know is self-educated in the way that they defined it that you know all you need to know is go online and like all for all you need to know it's online just go and you don't need a teacher to acquire it um, and I hope that doesn't change. Like, I hope that continues to be a myth. It's also a balance between um, what you're educating for, um, what is the purpose of your doing, and whether it benefits f from having a structure, a curriculum, uh, anything like that, that a teacher could provide versus something that you just want to learn on your own um, for yourself. You know, um, I think that is... Uh, that's probably what they're they are referring to. Um, I think I'm with you on on the self educating. Like I think students do need to know how to learn on their own, or you know, be kind of self sufficient. Um, and even if you have them go out on the internet, that they have the skills, the critical thinking skills, information literacy to sort through what is correct and not correct, and and to ask questions and all that stuff. So. My ninth grade history teacher, literally the first day of class, she said, question everything. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really stuck with me. So mm -hmm. for whatever reason, that stuck with me. And that includes, you know, when I'm reading something online, I'm like, well, because, you know, in history, it's always like first, uh, first and secondary, secondary resources, like who is this coming from? So I think I've just kind of transferred that to my online learning. I don't, I don't know if that phrase would necessarily work for everybody, but... Mm -hmm. um, there's just, I think there's something there. That's good to, you know, fact check, to cross check, you know, all that stuff. Um, I think that's all the topics I have. Do you have any other questions you want to ask? Not that I can think of at the moment. Well, thank you for doing this first episode. Next week, we'll be talking about the brain and learning and you'll be back. So I will talk to you next week. Yep. Sounds good. Have a great weekend. Have a great week. <laughs>